Hello, my name's Elliot and I run the Anthology of Heroes podcast. Each episode of the show follows the life of a hero from one country of the world, but rather than the stuffy old politicians or tired stories you read about in school, I'll be sharing the forgotten stories of rebels, slaves, heretics and outcasts, men and women who went against the tide of history regardless of the consequences. If this sounds like your kind of thing, check us out on Instagram and of course all major podcasting platforms. The name again is Anthology of Heroes Podcast, and we hope to see you there. Hello again. In the past episodes, we've seen that in the 20th century, Arabia has transformed itself beyond recognition, from a desolate backwater to one of the richest and most important places on Earth. We are now about to enter a period in which the world didn't care much about what happened over there. Before we go there, I suggest we refresh our memory a bit. Up to this point, we didn't really focus on the personalities in the story. But since we are dealing with monarchies, the personalities of the kings at hand matter very much. In this bonus episode, I'm going to take another look at the 20th century Arabia through the lens of the monarchs of the most important country on the peninsula, Saudi Arabia. And I will combine this with a discussion of arguably the most impactful inhabitant of the peninsula since the Prophet though not in a positive way, the terrorist Osama bin Laden and his family. These tales are closely interwoven, and they will illustrate many points that I have made in the previous episodes about how life in Arabia works and how it has evolved. First, I must tell you something about the making off of this podcast. As you know, my purpose is to explain the best I can how things got to the present point. So I guess you might say that this is an educational podcast. Still, I don't want it to sound like a classroom lecture, which I'm well aware it sometimes does, if only because of the way I talk. Now, I don't do that on purpose, folks. It naturally follows from the fact that this podcast is heavily scripted and that being unaccustomed to speaking English, I have to think carefully about how I structure my sentences. And even then, I will make mistakes inevitably. I can only hope that you find that amusing rather than irritating. If not, apologies, I try my best. Now, I toyed with the idea of making this episode a full improvisation exercise. It's merely a recap after all, so those who don't like it can just skip it and catch up next time. I tried, but believe me, you don't want me to just spew out whatever comes up in my head right now. I'll improvise more than usual, but still, this is about the best I can do at this moment. So knowing my limitations, I wanted to find another way to lighten things up a bit. I thought I'd do this by adding some more color to the story. If I threw a couple of memorable anecdotes out there, even if these are not all that helpful in explaining the present, you might still find it easier to remember the larger context. And also, I can hear you thinking from here, here we are now, entertain us right? Just one small problem though. Before I started recording, I read and summarized tens of thousands of pages. You can find the whole list of my sources on Facebook should you be interested. Since this is only a hobby, this took me several years of course. Now, when I made these summaries, my focus has been on understanding trends and forces and the connections between them. That was my purpose after all. The flip side to that, however, is that I didn't make notes about the colorful personalities and funny occurrences. Although I do remember a great many of them, more or less, 
This is a history podcast, and I bet you don't expect me to tell you how I remember something that I read 10 years ago, more or less. That just won't do. So what do I do? For each episode, I read another book or two, preferably ones that are full of amusing or revealing passages. This way, I also have an extra safeguard against more fundamental errors on my part. Now, normally, this reading is merely meant to put some flesh on the bones of the episode. But because such personal stories are at the center of today's episode, I will now borrow heavily from one particular book. It is, in my opinion, a magnificent one. The Pulitzer Prize winning The Bin Ladens by Steve Cole. Many of the stories, and even the general idea for this episode, come from Mr. Cole's book. I encourage you all to buy it. It's a terrific read. Now, I've read a Dutch translation, so if I were to quote from it, this would mean translating a book that was originally written in English back to English. The translation would of course differ from the original, so I could never say quote-unquote in this context. I considered using quote slash translate or something, but I'm sure the best thing to do is just to recount it all in my own words. But given how heavily I borrow from Steve Cole's work, it's only proper for me to mention that in advance. Now you also understand why it takes me a few weeks or even longer to get an episode out, even though I mentioned earlier that I got all the material ready. Now this is the time I need to read another book or two, double-checking the facts and screening for cool anecdotes to mention. Now let's start where we left off in the last episode, at the beginning of the 20th century. Our main protagonists are both living outside Central Arabia. Abdulaziz, the later founder of Saudi Arabia, is in exile in Kuwait, driven out by his rivals, the Al-Rashids. This guy looks nothing like the Arab kings we know today. He was a desert warrior, and that's no figure of speech. He reportedly fought over 50 battles. It appears he literally chopped off a man's head in battle. Somehow, I can't imagine many kings doing that nowadays. You could tell that Abdulaziz had had a tough youth, simply by looking at his appearance. Life in Arabia was no easy thing back then, even for royals. People lived in huts of mud and tents of goatskin. Travel was usually by camel. Now, I never rode on one, unfortunately, but it doesn't look all that comfortable to me. Rich and poor alike were plagued by endemic diseases, including a very prevalent one that affected the eyes. Education was near absent, like most modern things. Abdulaziz too was blind in one eye, barely literate, a charming and shrewd man with a sense of honor and something of a temper. And he must have been brave. Leading only a handful of men, he made an audacious move on Rijat and captured it by surprise. After that, he tried to survive by taxing passing caravans, as well as pilgrims on their way to Mecca and Medina. But he faced great opposition from the Al-Rashids, then still the great power of Arabia and clients of the Ottoman Empire. Meanwhile, Osama bin Laden's father, Mohammed, was living in East Yemen, in the region called the Hadramaut. Over there, the situation was even more precarious. There was very little authority to speak of. There was no safety. Those who could protected themselves by hiding in fortified mountain villages, as many still do. The bin Ladens had once lived in such a place, but they had fallen on hard times. And in Yemen, these were already bad times for everyone, such as it was. They usually were. 
The name Hadramaut means death is among us, which doesn't really sound like a tourist hotspot, does it? So Mohammed did what young Yemenis tended to do whenever times were hard. He went to a place that actually was a tourist magnet, the coastal city of Jeddah in Western Arabia. Yemeni labor migrants were expected to send money home and maybe someday return. If they had been successful, they could then become a respected sheikh. This was probably the idea when Mohammed bin Laden left for Jeddah. There he would start off as a simple construction worker. After he got the hang of it, he started his own business. But then the financial crisis came. On the other side of the peninsula, the pearling industry collapsed, never to recover. In Jeddah, the same thing would happen to the tourist industry. Mohammed bin Laden understood that he had to up sticks again. He went east to Central Arabia. That was where the center of power was shifting. There is a scene in Game of Thrones in which someone explains what wisdom is, supposedly. The answer should be seen in the context of the series, but as often, it's not without merit. Wisdom, it is claimed, is knowing what you know, and more importantly, what you don't. If so, then both Mohammed bin Laden and Abdelaziz were very wise men. Both were uneducated, yet they managed to make it big using the qualities they had, and that didn't require education. Abdelaziz recognized that he didn't understand the first thing about oil. So he was happy to leave the whole business to foreign experts, as long as he got a handsome profit. That said, I guess he didn't really have a realistic alternative either, except perhaps staying poor. Bin Laden didn't have an academic degree either, yet he managed to make his company the leading construction firm in Arabia. His style was unorthodox, but he got things done, and quickly. Instead of fancy engineering techniques, he used lots of people whom he got from many countries, including his native Yemen. Above all, he understood how to win contracts in this particular environment of an absolute monarchy. The king made all the big decisions, and a lot of smaller ones too, so Bin Laden stayed close to the king. Simple as that seems, this would turn out to be the key to the company's success. Indicative of the importance of personal relations was the fact that Abdelaziz had preferred the Americans over the British, while it was the latter who had done most to enable his rise. As always, the true reasons behind such choices are hard to fathom, but supposedly his choice was in large part due to the skill with which his foreign partners played their hand at tribal politics. The half-paralyzed American president FDR charmed the sheikh by gifting him his wheelchair. Churchill, by contrast, had less patience for such niceties. He supposedly affronted the king by smoking his cigar in his presence. I'm sure there were more important considerations involved. Still, this anecdote is telling about the way politics worked at the time. Personalities, and even tiny bits of personalities, did indeed make a difference. A man's values and ideas are formed to a large degree in his adolescent years. Perhaps that's why the newfound wealth didn't fundamentally seem to affect the king's character. He enjoyed simple things, like riding in the desert, hunting, soaking his hands in perfumed water. But what he did like were cars. He loved to go falcon hunting in a fancy car. After his bird of prey blinded the gazelle, it would be ritually slaughtered. Must have all been quite a sight, I think. 
Abdulaziz got these cars through an employee of the Californian oil company SoCal, and soon found himself in that guy's debt. It was probably no coincidence that SoCal would later, later obtain the concession to exploit the oil resources of the kingdom, later to evolve into Aramco. Mohammed bin Laden would work for Aramco before starting his own business. Now, Abdelaziz didn't know how to put his newfound riches to productive use, nor did he seem to care very much. So foreign associates and local hangers-on were quick to profit from this. Hence, a lot of the early oil wealth would be squandered or disappear in the pockets of this or that intermediary. For instance, there was something of a construction boom going on, but not on useful public buildings, but primarily on palaces. And Bin Laden would make sure that he was awarded these great assignments. The fact that there was no open bidding, let alone Western-style public procurement laws, that meant that the profit margins could be huge although, for the same reason, it's hard to tell. Also, the contractors shouldn't expect swift payment. Those who didn't take that in stride were pushed aside. Bin Laden didn't mind that the crown was soon deeply indebted to him, for it would, would make the relationship only closer. Directly after Abdulaziz passed away, his successor Saud is supposed to have asked an American partner a discreet question. The treasury was empty. So, could he perhaps spare a few hundred million dollars? It's not as if Saud would improve matters, though. He was known for throwing gold coins out of his car, much like Disney's Aladdin did from its flying carpet. So it's no surprise that on his watch, the crown's finances would spiral even further out of control. Saud is like the stereotypical poor man who wins the lottery. He spent humongous sums on luxury goods and women, and he got addicted to booze, while his father had outlawed alcohol. At the same time, he was still a child of the desert. Allegedly, he spent more time falcon hunting than ruling. But the fact that amusement was Saud's top priority had less amusing consequences for his poor subjects. In the late 50s, most people were still living pretty much the same way as in previous centuries. But now they could witness their elite shamelessly parading their luxury items around. This made the kingdom fertile ground for a revolution. The Egyptian demagogue Nasser would try to exploit the situation. There was clearly much sympathy for him in Saudi Arabia. Egyptian radio propaganda, for instance, found an eager audience there. When Nasserite officers overthrew the Imam of North Yemen, it was time to panic. Together with a precarious financial situation, this would cost King Saud his crown. You have to understand that among the Bedouins, the oldest son would not necessarily succeed his father. The family elders usually came together to determine who the most valid successor would be, preferably by consensus. This could be the oldest son of the former leader, or it could be one of his brothers. And other prominent family members would continue to have their say. For this reason, Saudi Arabia has been called a dictatorship ruled by a democracy. I personally find that highly exaggerated, but it's still a memorable phrase. In this case, the family saw that things were going downhill fast, and they decided that something had to be done. They turned to Saud's younger brother Faisal, who had a much better grasp of politics and economics. At first, Saud could remain king and continue to amuse himself like before, 
why Faisal would oversee day-to-day -day business. But the two would soon clash. Mohammed bin Laden was asked to mediate between them, which tells you something about his standing at the time, but he was far from eager to do this. He understood all too well that he could easily fall out with one of them, thereby risking not only his business, but even his head. So he cleverly faked an illness. Eventually, Saud was in effect declared unfit to rule, with the blessing of the religious establishment. This has been done quite often in monarchies, including in my own native Belgium. And even in the American Republic, it was recently contemplated for a while, though unsuccessfully. Saud went into exile, but he didn't intend to go down without a fight. He made his way to Egypt, where Nasser treated him as a guest of honor. The shrewd Egyptian president convinced him he could become king again, if only he propagated the Egyptian cause, which he did. So this was a time of unprecedented crisis and anguish for the Saudi kingdom. On the Yemeni border, there was even some serious fighting going on. The defense infrastructure was to be constructed by, you guessed it, Bin Laden's company. He would be aided in this by Americans. Faisal had to find an answer to the appealing rhetoric of the Egyptians. He wanted to use religion to outbid Nasser for the popularity among Arabs. So he sponsored Islamic causes around the region. And Mohammed bin Laden would help him in this. He profited from it at the same time, though. For instance, he obtained a contract to renovate the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem against the rivalry of Egyptian candidates. For the bin Ladens too, this was an opportunity to show their Islamic credentials, and the works in Jerusalem were a matter of great pride. It came as a shock then, when the Jewish state took effective control of East Jerusalem in the Six-Day War. When America supported Israel in the following Yom Kippur War, Faisal saw this as a terrible betrayal. This king was, if not an anti-Semite, then at least an avowed anti-Zionist. In fact, according to Steve Call, he was a true anti-Semite. He would, or so the author says, keep copies of the protocols of the elders of Zion in his library to hand these out to his guests. Now, knowing this, it was daring or arrogant or stupid of the US to send Henry Kissinger to negotiate an end to the upcoming oil crisis, for Kissinger was a Jew himself. Now it must be said that in this regard too, Faisal was a man of his time and place. Hatred of Israel was widespread throughout the Arab world. Abdelaziz, for instance, had been a big opponent of Israel too. He also had regarded America's support for its founding as a betrayal. It is debatable whether we should pass value judgment on historical figures for going along with the culture of their time. After all, culture defines our values and the boundaries of what we can think, to some extent at least. Even the gladiator rebel Spartacus didn't want to end slavery, for instance, nor did the greatest of the Greek philosophers. On the other hand, uncomfortable questions can arise when we apply the same logic to people in our own time. Faisal may have been more outspoken in his anti-Semitism than others, but still, he managed to put his differences with Kissinger aside and construct a closer relationship with America. As Arab kings go, this one was very modern-minded, leaving aside his views on Jew that, Jews, that is. He was a completely different creature from his brother Saud. 
Faisal cast off the liberal image of his youth and transformed himself into a very dignified figure, both in the eyes of his own people and the wider world. To this day, he is widely considered the most able ruler that Saudi Arabia ever had. It was during Faisal's reign that the Bin Laden patriarch passed away in a plane crash. Like Abdelaziz, he had been an uneducated man, who understood the importance of modern education in the brave new world that he was entering. So he too encouraged his sons to study in the West. Now it was their turn to take care of the family business. Osama, often taken for a supposedly brilliant engineer, was in fact less educated than many of his brothers, and at first he didn't play a very prominent role. It was his brother Salem who became the new head of the family. He decided which brother would get which job, and who got how much money. Like a true sheikh, one might say, or like a Saudi king. As you will know by now, I'm a big fan of Game of Thrones. Not for the dragons and the nudity, well, not only for that reason, but also because nearly everything that is said in this series is a quote from a philosopher taken out of context. In the last season, which I found very disappointing by the way, there was another quote which seems relevant here. It's by a sellsword who demands that someone make him a lord. The riposte is that you can't be a lord, you're a cutthroat. To which the mercenary replies something like, Kill a hundred men, they make you a lord. Kill a thousand, they make you a king. And then your sons can ruin your life's work. Now, this rags to riches, riches to rags quote was also uttered by Voltaire, who said that history is full of sound of silk slippers going down the stairs and wooden shoes climbing up. Does this apply to the Saudi kings or the Bin Ladens? Well, yes and no. Yes, Abdelaziz was a fighter and Mohammed bin Laden was a hard-working opportunist. And yes, some of their sons displayed some behavior that Voltaire would surely recognize as debauchery, as would the common folk and Wahhabi scholars of Saudi Arabia, by the way. But these sons did not destroy their father's life's work. There were even some who made it flourish, Faisal and Salim bin Laden being good examples of that. In fact, Faisal is supposed to have uttered a similar line himself, declaring that in one generation his people had gone from driving camels to driving Cadillacs, and warning that if things stayed the way they were, they would soon go back to driving camels. During their studies and through their dealings with foreigners, the second generation of Saudis and Bin Ladens had picked up some Western attitudes along the way. This left a mark on their personal lives. For instance, Salim bin Laden lived a life of jet-setting and rock and roll, but in Arabia he acted like a dignified sheikh. He once tried to fulfill his dream of marrying multiple wives at the same time, all more than ten years his minor, as was customary in Arabia. But here's the thing, he wanted them all to be from different Western countries. In Islam, polygamy is allowed, but the number of wives a man can wed is limited to four. So, for instance, Mohammed bin Laden and Abdulaziz had both wed many wives, but never more than four at the same time. Bin Laden's father would divorce his mother soon after his birth, for, for example. This made families more complicated and led to looser links between half-brothers, but it could also be used to foster strategic relationships. Crucially, a Muslim 
who has more than one wife must be able to provide for them all. In this light, I find it kind of amusing that some of the women were actually tempted by Salem's proposal, since he promised them a life of luxury and enjoyment. The majority probably knew of each other's existence beforehand. Most were less than enthusiastic, however, and Salem's fantasy remained unfulfilled. This comical situation may illustrate how culture can be both incredibly stubborn and flexible at the same time, and how seemingly different cultures may have some underlying commonalities. Osama, for his part, married multiple times too, among others with his 14-year-old niece. This too was not unusual in Arab culture, but frowned upon in the West. At the same time, even Osama would in his way be a product of American pop culture considering the way he obsessed about his personal image. This was a time of general reform and spending that changed the peninsula beyond recognition. In Oman, another Western-educated crown prince would get rid of his father and his conservative legacy. He finally got rid of slavery too, as did uh, his Saudi counterpart. Faisal favored all sorts of modernization, including Western education and television very much to the dismay of the clerical establishment that frowned upon any innovation that was unknown during the time of the Prophet. Common people demonstrated against the advent of television as well. As an indirect consequence of this, Faisal would be murdered. His successor was an unnoteworthy person who left the business of ruling to another brother, Fat. On his watch, the scope of the pushback against the modernization became obvious. Fanatics captured the holy city of Mecca, calling attention to the unrest among the conservative parts of the population. Iran offered a foretaste of what this might lead to, as the pro-Western Shah was overthrown and replaced by a revolutionary regime of Ayatollah Khomeini. This new Iranian leader wasted no time inciting rebellion against the kingdoms in the region, notably Saudi Arabia. His message wasn't lost on the Shiites of the oil-rich eastern provinces. In reaction to all this, much of the consumer culture disappeared from view, as the kingdom tried to forego an Islamist revolution in its own land. Education, the media, the courts and public life were much more strictly censored. This attitude was kind of paradoxical, for King Fat himself was known for his immoderate lifestyle, to which his body size attested. Like Faisal, but less convincingly, he tried to reinvent himself as a devout king. Salim bin Laden had much in common with Fat. They both migrated between a life of jet-setting and dignity. Salem made good use of their commonalities to create a bond with the new ruler. He approached Fat like he would a friend, all jokes and light manners. Supposedly because no one else dared to do this, the king seemed to enjoy it. Salim might have come off as some kind of a gesture to the casual observer, but he was anything but. He instructed his brothers to follow his example, assigning them with individual princes to become close with. Apparently, it worked. As the kingdom grew richer, the Bin Ladens kept profiting from royal assignments. Still in 1979, the atheist Soviet Union had invaded another Islamic country, Afghanistan. Now, you have to know that there is a Muslim doctrine that divides the world in the house of Islam and the house of war. According to this view, 
Until the territory under Islamic control covers the entire globe, there can only be a temporary ceasefire between the two. The rolling back of the House of Islam was not part of this plan, and hence considered totally unacceptable. So there was no lack of Arabs who were eager to go drive the infidels back. The Saudi kingdom saw this as an escape valve that should relieve the Islamist pressure. The relationship between the Bin Ladens and the Wahhabi faith and these revolutionaries was as complicated as the one with the royals. They actively helped smoke out the rebels that had taken over the Grand Mosque in Mecca. This was necessary for they had been in charge of its renovation. But afterwards, the free-thinking Salem also supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. It tells you something that Osama's standing within the family became much higher since he made the war in Afghanistan his personal cause. He would take the experience that he acquired in his father's construction firm and put it to use aiding the rebels. He obtained a fan base among them through his clever PR and just as importantly through his useful connections and inherited wealth. It was only because he was born to a life of privilege that his modest behavior stood out which earned him respect. This would not have been possible if he could not have done otherwise. The war in Afghanistan was a success in a military sense, but it backfired spectacularly. The radicals had grown in confidence and grew ever bolder in criticizing the kingdom itself and especially the alliance with America. In the aftermath, the Wahhabis and the Americans had lost their common enemy. Osama moved his activities to Yemen against the wishes of the Saudi government, which didn't want to undermine Abdullah Saleh at the time. Saleh lost his Saudi alliance when he backed Saddam in the Gulf War, but that didn't mend the relationship between Osama and his homeland. He had been highly offended by Fahd's decision to use American troops to ward off the threat of Saddam Hussein. Osama offered to use his own volunteers to keep Iraq at bay, so that this sacrilege could be avoided. In his view, this was worse than the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. The Saudis were supposed to be the guardians of Islam's holy shrines, and now here they were, willingly inviting an infidel army. Osama's offer was quickly rebuffed, however. The Saudis understandably placed more trust in the capabilities of the US army. The relationship between Osama and the kingdom went straight downhill from there. Meanwhile, the Bin Laden company profited handsomely from the coming of the American forces, for it was accorded contracts for building military sites. Osama was not shy to take his share of the dividends as a shareholder, though he continued to rail against the American presence as well as against capitalist profits. He would not profit for long anymore, though, for he would be expelled from the kingdom, his citizenship revoked, and his assets frozen. He used to compare his fate with that of the Prophet, who, as we shall yet see, was driven into exile too. Osama found a new home in the Islamist Sudan, where he made himself useful building roads, as he had before. He also stayed involved in terrorism. American embassies were blown up in Africa, killing hundreds. So in the 90s, Osama was very infamous already. In 2000, his Al-Qaeda targeted a US warship in Yemen making it very plain to anyone that the terrorist threat had never subsided there either. The next year, Sama made his big move on American soil. By that time, he had made his way back to Afghanistan, where he forged an alliance with the Taliban, who would welcome him mostly for his money. That said, 
He was no billionaire, as I used to think, and I am sure many of you do too, for it has been written often enough. Then, even more than now, people could only guess how wealthy he was, and even after the loss of his income from the family business, he was still a multi-millionaire, so the Taliban had good reason to welcome him in. By then, it had long been obvious that the policy of cozying up to the radicals had done the kingdom little good. King Abdullah would again change tack. I have to make an apology in this regard, though. If I remember correctly, in one of the first episodes, I mentioned that King Abdullah reacted to the 9-11 attacks, attacks, while in fact at that time Fat was still king. But for what it's worth, Abdullah had been the de facto ruler for quite a few years by then. Even so, sorry for the mistake, I try to be as cautious as I can, but I'm one guy, and I'm not perfect. If you notice an error like this, please let me know. I am not too proud to admit my mistakes, and I will put them right, as you see. And oh yeah, the more people listen, the smaller the risk that something slips through the net. So all the more reason to spread the word about the podcast. Okay, enough with all that, back to our story. Abdullah looked for ways to curb the influence of the radicals. Terrorist networks were effectively suppressed, and many of their militants would flee to the tumultuous Yemen. There they joined local terror groups to form Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. As we saw in earlier episodes, this influx of Sunni radicals would encourage the Houthi rebellion, and so contribute to the current civil war in which Saudi Arabia is heavily involved, of course. Now, Abdullah's change of policy may have been part of his personality, but it was also forced upon him by the circumstances. The USA put pressure on him, while it was for some time ridding itself of its dependence on Arabian oil through fracking and by taking over Iraq, for instance. For that reason, among other things, the overthrow of Saddam was understandably lamented by Rijat, unlike the attack on the Taliban. Then finally, there was the Arab Spring, in which President Obama paid lip service to the freedom movements. He also made a deal with Iran and talked about pivoting away from the Middle East. So no wonder the Saudis would look for new allies. They also invested heavily in their own defense, as did regional rivals. In the past five years, the kingdom was the world's biggest importer of weapons. The time of the second generation of kings was now drawing to a close. Abdullah had been in his 80s when he ascended the throne. In accordance with the custom initiated by Abdulaziz, his brothers became his appointed successors, but they died before the king. The crown then ultimately passed to Abdullah's half-brother Salman, another octogenarian. He has in practice handed the steering wheel to his go-getter son, MBS, shoving aside his former heir. This was highly controversial among the other branches of the royal family, so the crown prince felt compelled to show that he would not tolerate any challenges to his power. He would all but end the compacts that held the country together. He reined in both the clerics and the well-connected businessmen. Saudi Arabia is now no longer a dictatorship ruled by a democracy, if it ever was. As I said before, I doubt whether this is a useful description, but at least it's a reminder that the family held quite some power. The cabinet had always been filled with princes. The family rule may seem archaic, but at least it provided a mechanism to ensure that the ruler was, more or less, fit for the job. There were not too many candidates to pick from, to be sure, but still, a king or a crown prince that proved inept could be cast aside, like Saud was, for instance. 
Now, in the relatively short time of plenty that we have lived through, royals who didn't hold the top job could expect to live a comfortable life and sometimes even have great influence. Now that radical changes have become unavoidable, coups may become more prevalent, like they were before the oil wealth enabled the kingdom to buy dynastic peace. This will become plain in the upcoming episodes. Now, if the tradition of family rule would draw to a close, there might be a bigger risk that future monarchs are a poor cast of the dice, and that we will see more palace coups, more foreign meddling, and more unpredictability. Consolidating his rule, MBS started a war on corruption, and this was not limited to two royals. As we saw earlier, the informal way of doing business in the kingdom meant that it was nearly impossible to become rich and powerful without resorting to what might be labeled corruption these days. Princes and influential businessmen were rounded up until they handed over part of their supposedly ill-gotten gains. Among them, Bakr bin Laden, who had emerged as the new leader of the bin Laden family after Salem died in yet another plane crash. He transferred a large part of the ownership over the company to the state. Ironically, this meant that the bond between the Saudi and the bin Laden family has grown closer still. But the fortunes of the family are threatened from all sides. The bin Laden name itself has become toxic since 9-11, as you can imagine. The recent belt tightening in the kingdom hurts the firm's prospects. And in 2015, the Economist reported, quote, Saudi Arabia temporarily stopped the Bin Laden Group, one of the world's biggest construction companies, from taking on any more work after a crane it was operating at Mecca's Grand Mosque collapsed, killing 107 people and injuring hundreds more. End quote. This incident happened on September, September 11th. To most Bin Ladens, this date must have seemed cursed. So, time to wrap things up. What can we take away from today's experiment with a more personal approach, say. Now, all these people we discussed had their own unique personalities, and given their power, they, these clearly played a big role in shaping their country. So at first sight, this seems to add way to the big man theory of history. It's the acts of important people that have shaped our world, like kings and businessmen. But to a degree, these people were also products of their time. A time of desert warriors produced a tribal king. An age of newfound plenty appropriately witnessed the rule of a parvenu that could be manipulated. The threat of bankruptcy forced a modernizer onto the stage. The subsequent transformation clashed with the values of most inhabitants, which led to a conservative reaction. And after that backfired, Saudi Arabia started its own war on terror. Now it enters a time of looming economic and political crisis, demanding forceful changes and perhaps leading to a less consensual sort of leadership. Interestingly, we find a similar evolution in the Bin Laden family, whose fortunes are closely intertwined with those of the monarchy. The Bin Ladens came from humble roots, they migrated from their homeland, Yemen, and grew rich by fostering a personal relationship with the king. Like the kingdom itself, the company started off as an amateurish endeavor. Both the company and the state turned to Western contractors, consultants and workers from poor countries. But both remained, in essence, family firms. The offspring of the founder filled the board of executives in the Bin Laden company like the Saudi princes filled the ministerial cabinets. 
but at a certain point, the call for professionalization became too loud to ignore. Today, the Bin Laden Group is a modern multinational that bears little resemblance to the construction firm it once was. Finally, what about the ugly duckling in the Bin Laden family? Osama could never have become the most impactful person of the 21st century, arguably, had it not been for his father's shrewdness in taking advantage of the traditional ways in which the king handed out contracts. The pride that his family got from renewing the most important Islamic sites may have contributed to his zeal. His radical ideas cannot be separated from the official policy of Islamization during the 80s. But at the same time, he was a product of Western pop culture. While hiding in caves and safe houses, he spent his dull final years watching and re-watching his old televised speeches over and over again. Like a forgotten rock star, nostalgic for the time when his name was still on everybody's lips. Just sitting back, trying to recapture a little of the glory days to borrow from Bruce Springsteen. Even a man typically considered a manifestation of pure evil may have more in common with the rest of us than we might imagine. That is a sobering thought, even a frightening one. Finally, as Steve Cole suggests, Osama might have got the idea of the 9-11 attacks from personal experience, sp specifically the untimely death of both his father and his brother in plane-related accidents. But while the prophet reportedly flew to heaven, he certainly didn't do this in an airplane. As much as Osama bin Laden supposedly tried to emulate 7th century, he was the product of his own time and place. Life, after all, is a stage, and we all merely play the roles that we are handed.